Hi, I'm Rick Steves. If you've noticed that Mother Nature is looking a little haggard lately and you'd like to do your part to help the environment, we've got some creative suggestions for your next vacation. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll consider ways you can have a great trip while leaving our Earth a cleaner place. We'll explore ecotourism, using your travels to pitch in and make a difference as you learn about your destination's ecological sensitivities. Our guest, Jeff Greenwald, has some intriguing ideas on using your travels to make a difference for the planet. And later, no matter what some politicians say, experts know that global climate change is having a profound and rapid effect on some of our world's most fragile and precious destinations. Michael Shapiro will be here to discuss some of the vanishing places you should plan to visit before they disappear forever. It's a dynamic Earth, and we're taking your calls as together we explore ways we can travel as a friend of the planet. It's coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, we're exploring ways to travel as a friend of the planet. Environmentalists, not to mention more and more average people like you and me, are concerned about using up natural resources while pollution and greenhouse gases are cranking up the global heat. Today, we're considering constructive ways we can travel without exacerbating environmental problems. One of the latest buzzwords in the travel industry is ecotourism. In a moment, we'll explore what that really means with Jeff Greenwald, a specialist on ethical travel. Jeff will explain how we can be green travelers. And later this hour, writer Michael Shapiro reminds us of popular tourist destinations that are vanishing before our eyes. First, let's open up the phones for your travel questions, dreams, and stories. 877-333-RICK. That's our number, 877-333-7425. And you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Erica from St. Paul, Minnesota. Hi, Erica. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. How are you doing? Uh, just great, thanks. What kind of travel stories and adventures uh, do you like to share? Well, on a cold day in Minnesota, it just warms my heart to talk about the trip we took last April to Egypt. Egypt from cold Minnesota, all right. Yes, my husband and our 12-year-old son and I flew to um, the Netherlands and from there to Cairo. We stayed in on Zamalek, which is an island in the Nile River. Huh. Very nice. Uh, I think it was about a two-star hotel. Very, very friendly. Of course, while in Cairo, we took a felucca ride on the Nile, which is uh, a sailboat. It's an Egyptian-style sailboat. And we did that at night, so that was really, really fun. And we saw the royal mummies at the Egyptian Museum. And, of course, we went out to the pyramids and Sphinx in Giza. And we we also visited a new, a beautiful new uh, park on the top of a hill in Cairo, just wonderful. Unfortunately, the entrance was too expensive for most Cairo residents, so um, only foreign tourists were there. Hmm. They didn't have a double price tier thing where locals could afford it and Western people would pay Western prices? Actually, they did. They had the Egyptian price and they had the um, tourist price, but the Egyptian price was too high. Even at that, wow. Yeah. What an experience for your 12-year-old. It was wonderful. Um, And of course, Cairo being such a huge city and I really do have to say the air pollution is a big problem there. Oh, yeah. And the air, the air is quite polluted. So we decided to head east to the Sinai Peninsula for the weekend. And we um, took a, a nighttime van and went to the uh, Suez Canal. And we went under the Suez Canal because now there is a tunnel that was built under the canal. And then we went down to the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula and up the eastern side about halfway up, I think, um, to a, a tiny place called Dahab. That's spelled D-A-H-A-B. Uh-huh. While in Cairo, someone told us about it. They had recently been there. And we stayed in a tiny, modest hotel. We had our own little little apartment. And we went snorkeling in, in the Gulf of Aqaba, which is the northern part mm. of the Red Sea. Anyway, the the coral was incredibly beautiful. There were lionfish. Um, I remember floating, just floating on the surface with 
two lionfish, a, a large one and a smaller one, probably no more than two feet below me, maybe three feet below me. Wow. They were just hanging out near the shore, floating, <laughs> and I was floating right above them, just just watching them and wishing I had an underwater camera. But um, later, only later did I find out that lionfish are extremely poisonous. <laughs> oh my goodness, that might have been a more memorable vacation than you wanted it to be. Yeah, exactly. There, speaking of um, poisonous, my son also saw several pink jellyfish, and of course we saw lots of sea urchins. We saw rainbow fish, parrotfish. I think they're called parrotfish. They have kind of a beak. So it sounds and like you were swimming in a like in a pet store almost. I, I, my my image of the Mediterranean Sea is nowhere near as interesting. So the Red Sea actually is a is a is a festival of life, huh? It, it's a festival of life. It was incredibly beautiful. I was mesmerized. Erica, when you were in this resort in the Red Sea, was it mostly Egyptian tourists, or were there a lot of Western tourists? Actually, there were a few Egyptian tourists. We were the only Americans. People were surprised when we said we were Americans. They thought at least we might be Canadians or something. (laughs) Let me take you back to Cairo for just a minute. Uh, When you went out to the pyramids, did you actually go inside of one of the pyramids? Not only did we go inside um, one of the smaller pyramids, but the guide allowed our 12-year-old to climb all the way to the top of one of the smaller... Uh, wow, what a great experience that must have been. Yeah, he, he went all the way up with his camcorder, filming the whole thing. And if, I got about eight or ten blocks, and a guy blew a whistle, and I had to come down. We weren't supposed to go up. But he said, well, if you come around this side, they're right. not really watching. And we gave him a, a lot of backsheesh. <laughs> yeah, back, backsheesh is a very important word. It, very it, it lets you climb backsheesh. to the top of the pyramids. Did you go to the very middle of the biggest pyramid? That's supposed to be quite a special experience. Uh, that we didn't. Okay. That we didn't. Because I have, and that is really a fantastic experience. Another question. When you were in Cairo, did you feel comfortable as an American with all of the uh, tension in the Islamic world? I felt very comfortable, but I have to tell you, um, I do speak a little Arabic and okay. a lot of French. And we also had um, a very close friend there who is bilingual and who helped us get taxis, etc. Okay, but Erica, just advice to listeners who may be dreaming about Egypt but thinking, ah, I don't know if it's too tense these days. Would you say that you'd be comfortable if you're reasonably uh, a good traveler? Yes, I think if you are a good traveler and you, you're not making a really big deal out of being American, in other words, you're not sure. wearing your flag on your backpack. Um, if you, I mean, I'm very proud of being an American, and I've traveled quite a bit in, in my life, and I've always felt welcomed. Sure. Um, I think that if people uh, really relate to other people just as human beings, and we can get past politics... And we, we can get past our governments. I think that's a beautiful thought. And I think for Americans going into uh, countries like uh, moderate or modern Islamic nations, I think that's a powerful uh, way they yeah. can contribute to understanding between Islam and, and Christendom. Erica from St. Paul, Minnesota, thanks for your call. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Kendra in Seattle writes about her faux pas. While on a visit to the Netherlands, some friends and I were strolling along the quaint canals in Amsterdam. My friend had just finished eating her fries with mayonnaise and spotted a garbage can to discard the wrapping. We continued our stroll to hear her shouting behind us, and we turned to see a man gesturing wildly. It turns out the trash bin was the mailbox of a houseboat. There's a good lesson. And we have Jean on the line in San Francisco. Hi, Jean. Hi, Rick. What I want to tell you after hearing everybody's talking about their special experience. I think this one you would really like. I first went to China in 1975, and we were sort of invited, and so we went to, you know, all the major cities, and every time uh, when we got to each city, all the press people would come up and ask us, you know, because we were the first Chinese-American group. They would ask us, uh, what do you do it in the United States? You know, they keep on at that time, don't know anything. They they think we're, you know, laundry, <laughs> works in a laundry or grocery store or something like that. And I told them, well, you know, I work for the government. Oh, they said, really? And then they start asking me questions about, you know, what is uh, the United States stance on the Dalai Lama? What is the United States stance on the Quemoy uh, and Matsu incident, and you know all those questions which I really don't know too much about because I'm not a, a you know a historian or 
politician. So finally, when we got to Peking, I finally told myself, well, I know that the press is going to ask me all this question because they invited us to the the Hall of the Great People and and have dinner there. So I said, I better go to our uh, liaison office. We don't have embassy then, but we do have a liaison office. And do you know who was the liaison officer then? Uh, no. George Bush, the father. Wow, and you met him. The number one, and he... Did he know what our policy was with the Dalai Lama? Uh, yeah, because uh, actually what I did, I uh, asked him, oh, these are questions that I asked us. You know, what shall I say? Well, he says, and he's very clever. He says, on the Dalai Lama, what you have to say is that uh, this is uh, internal affair between China and, you know, um, uh, Tibet. So as United States, we don't get involved in that. So that was a pretty easy one. But the one about the uh, our stance in Kwemoy and Matsu as our Navy were patrolling the, the Straits, uh, that's a little tough. Then he told me, well, you ever play bridge? I said, yeah. He said, well, Give him a rough and a slough, you know. I said, a rough and a slough? He said, oh, yeah. Tell him that we back both the communists and Chiang Kai-shek during World War II. And we're old friends. And we still are old friends with uh, Chiang Kai-shek and, and uh, you know, uh, the Guangdong just because the communists doesn't want us to be old friends. That's not awful. And that was the answer. There you go. Good, uh, good uh, diplomat. Sli- yeah. Slicing the pie so everybody thinks they have I the biggest piece. I still have a picture of him. He, he's uh, with his dog in front of the embassy. He, he says, do you want anything? I said, no, I got everything. But I saw the sign that says Coca-Cola. And I said, well, I've been in here for almost 28 days, and I haven't had a Coke. I said, oh, okay. And he went into his kitchen, or t- told someone to get in the kitchen, and he gave me a whole bag uh, full of uh, Coke. I think we had about 40 Cokes in our... Those are probably for George W. Uh, yeah, George, George W. Gene, fascinating. Thank you so much for your call and a little memory of uh, your time in China. Okay. All right, bye now. Bye. Eight seven seven three 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 rick and radio at ricksteves.com. That's how you can reach us at Travel with Rick Steves. In a minute, Jeff Greenwald joins us to explore ecotourism as a way we can travel and help the environment at the same time. And a little later, Michael Shapiro joins us to take your calls to discuss some of the world's vanishing places. This planet's the only one we have, and we're learning to treat it right as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
kaji meitemei ole dapash aingua masailand naisafiri orik steve that's in my masai language my name is meitemei ole dapash i'm from masailand in kenya and i travel with rick steve kaji meitemei ole dapash naingua masailand naisafiri orik steve I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, I want to travel in an environmentally sensitive way, eco-travel. As a matter of fact, eco-tourism is an, is an industry these days. And I've got with me a man whose work is promoting ethical traveling. In fact, he's the executive director and co-founder of Ethical Traveler. His website is ethicaltraveler.org. And he's joining us today to talk about how we can travel as a friend of the environment. Jeff Greenwald, thanks for joining us. Our pleasure. Jeff, tell us just what is eco-travel. Well, eco-travel, to be absolutely frank, Rick, eco-travel at this point is a marketing term. It's, uh, it's a marketing term that everyone wants to be able to use because it, it, it makes people want to visit various destinations. Eco-travel in its best sense, in its original sense, as developed in the 1980s, is basically a leave-no-trace kind of travel. It's a travel where you can go to a country or go to an environment, enjoy what there is, give something back of, by way of supporting the local uh, tourist industry and the local naturalist and the local environment, but you don't, you don't take anything away. You don't, you don't do anything to harm or compromise the environment. What would you take away as an example to hurt an ecosystem? Well, a great example, the classic example, is uh, trekking in Nepal in the old days. Back in the late 1970s and early 80s, uh, before the ecotourism movement, travelers used to trek through the, the, the Nepal Himalaya, and they had you know, very, very specific wishes for food and what they would eat. And to, to um, support these desires, the local people were cutting down the local forests and all the rhododendron trees and all the local plants to keep their fires burning so that they could feed the trekkers. That was a great example of tourism adversely affecting the environment. In the mid-'80s and late-'80s, a lot of organizations in Nepal got wise to this problem, they started promoting low-energy stoves and other ways to cook that did involve firewood and a lot of replanting industries. So what had become exploitive travel in the Nepal Himalaya became eco-travel. Now, I don't think people travel in a way that just um, crassly, selfishly, mean-spiritedly wants to ruin the environment, but I think a lot of innocent, well-meaning people are just, like, clueless to what they're doing that hurts the environment. I mean, for instance... I would buy some coral and bring it home, and I've heard that coral is not uh, a good thing to buy for environmental reasons. Absolutely. Not only buying coral, which is the equivalent of buying elephant ivory, and that a living creature has to be destroyed to put it in the shop, but even people who love to dive and snorkel, there's not a, a real consciousness among a lot of divers or snorkelers that kicking reefs or touching them with your, you know, kicking them with your fins or touching them with your gloves is harmful. It's not that people are selfish or dumb or even thoughtless. They just need to be educated about the impact that they have when they travel in a lot of different places. And is that something you do at Ethical Traveler? That's something that we absolutely uh, try to do. We, we try to provide people with tools that people need to travel wisely and to make the right decisions about where they travel to. All right, give me three or four uh, ways that, let's say, me as just the well-meaning but not very uh, enlightened traveler to some part of the developing world or even the developed world might do something that would be more destructive environmentally than I'd like it to be. Okay, well, let's say you just go to a country like uh, Indonesia and rent a two-stroke motorcycle. Uh, a lot of travelers rent motorcycles when they, when they travel, but unfortunately the two-stroke motorcycles pump a tremendous amount of very dangerous pollutants into the air. It's better to take existing local transportation or to make sure you get a bicycle or a four-stroke motorcycle. When people hike, when they go hiking, and I'm not even going to use a foreign country for this example, I'll just use tourists who come to the beautiful Point Reyes National Seashore in California. Stay on the trails. When you hike off the trails, whether it's at the Point Reyes Seashore or in Canyonlands in Utah or in the Amazon rainforest, as soon as you're hiking off the trails, you're destroying the ecosystem. There's a reason the trail's been built there, and when you stay on the trail, you get to enjoy, you know, 90% of, of the scenery and damage 0% of it. Now, are you, in your study, because you're pretty pure about this and, and pretty passionate about this, do you come up with some uh, conclusions where it's just not right for 
first world travelers to go there, period. There's no way to do it that you wouldn't be destructive. In some examples, yes. For example, I would say that one very sensitive area in ecotourism right now is swimming with dolphins, okay? A lot of people go to places like um, Belize or places like New Zealand to swim with the wild dolphins. Well, there's two ways to do this. You know, in one of the situations, you're chasing after these pods of wild dolphins, and when you find them, you jump in the water with them. That, that's got to be uh, something that's, if not damaging, very intrusive to the dolphin community and potentially chasing them away from their feeding grounds. Another way that that's done is a, a ship simply anchors, and they let the wild dolphins come to them, and then they jump in the water. Well, that's not so great either, is it, because the dolphins have you know, stopped doing what they're doing. They've come to this cruise ship. They're intaking whatever pollutants that the ship is putting out. They're eating the food off the cruise ship. So things like swimming with wild dolphins, I don't think there's any good way to do it, no matter how you do it. So aren't you just being a spoil sport? Don't a lot of people say, oh, no, here comes Jeff Greenwald. Let's go the other way. We <laughs> want to have some fun when we travel. You know, there's wonderful ways to swim with, swim with dolphins and visit dolphins. Specifically, you could join an organization like the Ocean Conservancy and become part of a research project to study the behavior of dolphins and help protecting them. You know, I would feel like a spoil sport about these things, Rick, if there weren't 20 billion other things to do on this planet that were just absolutely wonderful things that, that didn't endanger the environment. But with so many wonderful things to do, why do things that, that create a problem? You know, Jeff, tourism is a huge industry. It's in, in some ways, you measure it's the number one employer and the, and the, the number one economy on, on Earth. I mean, what competes with it? Oil and armaments, I think. They right? say by 2010, oil won't even compete with travel. So it's, yeah. just, it's just tourism and armaments. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, it's big business, in other words. Now, uh, in that industry, there is independent travelers, and then I think the lion's share of the business and the people and the money is in organized travel, uh, mm-hmm. cru- cruise ships and tour groups and, and, and large groups of people uh, traveling in an organized way. Uh, do you get much support? Do, are you trying to lobby these organizations to travel in an environmentally sensitive way, and do they take you seriously? We're actually working almost exclusively with individual travelers. In my own personal writing, the articles that I, that I work on, I bring up some of the larger issues. One of the issues that uh, could, could be mentioned in, in the sentence you just spoke was the airline industry. I mean, they're a huge polluter, and everyone who travels, whether a group or independent travel, uses an airplane generally. Um, I, I don't know if, if travelers are aware of these carbon buyback plans where you can go to these organizations like Future Forests who will calculate how much CO2 and greenhouse gas you're producing by flying from point A to point B, and then for a nominal fee, 8 or 15 or $20, plant enough trees to compensate for the carbon emissions that you've produced. You know, I've been, I've been struggling with that myself because I've spent my career encouraging people to travel to Europe, and it takes several hundred gallons of gasoline to get me from Seattle to, to Germany and back. Mm-hmm. And uh, that contributes to, all, all these emissions contribute to the greenhouse effect, doesn't it? Tremendously. People, travelers, don't realize that airline traffic is a huge, huge contributor to the greenhouse effect. Okay, so I want to go there, uh, regardless of the impact on the environment, I want to go there, but I can do something then to help counter the negative impact I've made? A lot of ecotourism is based on exactly that theory, that you know, you're going to go to some place, you're, you're going to have an effect. It's like the Heisenberg principle in that there's no way to observe something without affecting it. You're going to have an effect. Right. But there are ways where you can turn that effect around to either where you're balancing it, like with carbon buybacks, or you're actually helping to save or improve a situation. A great example of that, Rick, is when people go, I mean, in my opinion, to New Zealand and see the Maori uh, dances or, or festivals. Here are festivals that, as hokey as they might seem to some people, they're a tradition that would otherwise die out without the support of travelers. Okay, so let's talk about giving back, because I hear that a lot, giving back. So you can give back by uh, the carbon buyback thing. Okay, right. you're going to create enough... Um, photosynthesis, right, to counter what you've done to contribute to global warming? Mm-hmm. Is that, do I understand the science of that correctly? That's exactly. Basically? That's the one. It, it, to, to hopefully balance what you And you can also travel in a way that you are um, funding by your spending your tourist dollars thoughtfully uh, traditional cultures that are endangered. Is that the other point you were just making? 
Yes, you can buy art by local artisans. You can stay in locally owned places. You can support local dance and culture. And then I always think the most powerful way I can give back is just to come home and learn about the impact of our great nation on this planet and vote. And this isn't a liberal conservative thing. This is a vote with a broad perspective. Vote understanding that who wins this election may impact somebody in the developing world even more than it impacts me and vote for not my own uh, financial well-being, but vote for what's best in the broad sense. That's absolutely true. I think that a lot of Americans have an impression that America is a very, very generous uh, giver of foreign aid to other countries. In, in, in fact, um, we don't give very generously. If you ask, I think there was a survey or a poll done recently asking people how much they thought Americans gave of their you know, net income to foreign aid, and people said it was 5 or 10%. It's actually one half of 1%, and there's a big move afoot right now to raise the political consciousness in this country to raise that up to 1%. That's the one movement that people can look into. Exactly. That's, that's pretty exciting, yeah. Now, we've got some uh, calls on the line here. I want to talk to Betsy in St. Simmons Island, Georgia. Betsy, how are you doing? I'm fine, Rick. Nice to talk with you. Thanks for calling. What's on your mind? And then I wanted to talk about Costa Rica, which is a terrific place to go see things. And how was your experience there from an ecotourism point of view? I've been a couple of times, and the key to the country, it's one of the ones that has figured out how to make it work. It has set up um, a very strong system for training guides. The um, country set up so that you can go either in a moderate way or a very upscale way. If you wish, you could go in a very uh, shoestring manner through the country and see the parks in a, um, an informed way. Let me try to give an example. A guide will go through who can point across a a gully to um, a hummingbird nest because he shares this information with other guides. They can bring their large spotting scopes and point out the nesting quexels and let you see them flighting in the nuptial flights and flying in the nuptial flights. And it's just a spectacular way to see things that if you just walked through, you would not notice yourself. Um, the country is beautiful uh, from the volcanoes like... Um, Arenal, um, to the cloud forest of um, Monteverde, or to the rainforest of um, Manuel Antonio. Now, Betsy, and, excuse mm-hmm. me, Betsy, I get the sense that Costa Rica has a, a huge part of its economy as tourism, and they recognize that environmental, responsible, uh, you know, uh, stewardship of its environment is like fundamental to keeping its economy strong. It is the example that this works, um, so that the people who are guides bring in the dollars from the tourists, which help the economy and help the people who are in Costa Rica deliver a very high level of service and information to the tourists who's coming through. The other point I wanted to make is they've balanced it so you can travel with someone who's really, to be honest, not all that fond of nature, and they'll still have a good time, and you'll have a good time. They've set it up so one of you can stay in the pool, and infinity pool, and swim up to the bar, and the other can get on a, a boat and go through the mangrove uh, forest. And that range of things to do makes it a very, very interesting place to visit. Jeff, has has Costa Rica figured it out how to make money on its environment and still uh, take good care of it? Absolutely. And our our guest is right. Uh, Costa Rica is uh, pretty much the poster child for ecotourism. But there's something else very important to remember about Costa Rica. Not only do they have a strong ecotourism sector, but they also have very high social standards, really good public health rankings, so when you go to the hotels in a place like Costa Rica, you know that the service people, the people who are working with you in the hotels, are also being taken care of by the country. And when you travel to Costa Rica, you're supporting a country that cares about its environment, that cares about its people, and in that way you're, you're also giving something back to the world. Thanks, Betsy, for your call. You're very welcome. You know, when I'm traveling, I, I often encounter these incredibly rich resorts where people like fly in and they never even touch the local communities, but they've just got this paradise kind of tropical environment and then they can jet out of there. Um, We know about Club Med, but there's also these exclusive resorts in the tropics. Jeff, can you talk about them a little bit? I I sort of have a bittersweet feeling about them. I'd love to be able to talk talk to you about them, Rick. I haven't been to very many of them, of these $900 a night resorts. But I think that even among the people who are, you know, sort of the noble gentry in our, in our society, 
there has been a real growing conscience about you know eco travel, and that quite a few of these um, outfits are also trying to run environmentally responsible trips. But I can't speak intelligently about them because I've never really been on one of them. Oh, I, I'm sorry, I was on one to Seven Spirit Bay in the Coburg Peninsula in Australia, and they actually prided themselves on being one of Australia's first true you know ecotourism resorts. Huh, so there are these self-sufficient. There are these elite fly-in and fly-out uh, resorts that are doing their best to be eco-sensitive. Some of them are, not not all of them are. You know, you can't just cuz a place is expensive doesn't mean it's going to be environmentally sensitive. Now, I would think water is going to be a big political and economic um, hot potato in the next uh, generation and you've got these uh, resorts in the developing world that are very plush and lush and golf courses in the middle of a desert and so on. Can that be done in an environmentally sensitive way? Yes, a lot of them are, are taking great, great care to recycle water, to use gray water, which are things like bath and shower water for things like, like the, guard, the gardens. Some places, um, yeah, for instance, I was just in Indonesia, in Bali, where one of the beautiful water palaces there, a place called Tirtaganga, now has what they call wastewater gardens. Hmm. So the water from the, the cesspools is actually being purified and filtered by plants in the ground and then it, it becomes pure water, which then runs off and becomes part of the water table. Wow, that's great. So they are pretty progressive then, uh, even if there's a crass uh, difference between the wealth and, and um, you know, affluence and then poverty all around you, they can still be doing their uh, splurgy thing in the develop- middle of the developing world without raping the environment. Quite often, yeah. That's good. Tell me, I know that you think that islands have a sort of special part in this whole ecotourism thing. Why are islands so important? Islands are sort of the canaries in the coal mine. The islands are, you know, they're, they're out there. They're at risk. They're, they're in the middle of, of, of nothing, in, in the way to speak. They're surrounded by the ocean, which is the huge ecosystem of the planet Earth. And the, the ills that are going to befall the mainland often befall islands first. A good example, of course, comes with global warming and the rising ocean levels. Many, many, many island communities will be inundated with water long before the people, you know, in the um, Los Altos Hills find out water lapping at their doorsteps. So, but, but before we go on on that, that's very interesting to me because there's entire nations that are like 10 feet above sea level, right? The, what is it, the Maldive Islands? Yeah. And, and then, uh, so they're going to have a vested interest in blowing the whistle on global warming because the sea's going to rise as the ice cap melts. Unfortunately, another problem with islands uh, is that most of them are not very powerful. You know, when the Palau comes and starts banging its fist on the table at the U.N., huh. people are not exactly going to, you know, all leap up with their ears perking to attention. But what about Club Med? I mean, if you owned stock in Club Med, all of their property is at sea level. Mm-hmm. Are they, are they concerned? I don't know. What, what Club Med is a French company, and I do not know what their policies are uh, for environmental sensitivity. I would imagine they'd be paying attention or, or gravitating towards ski resorts. You'd think they'd have a vested interest, wouldn't you? While we're pondering our impact on the planet, let's take a look at the places that are hardest hit, in some cases disappearing during our own lifetimes. Writer Michael Shapiro shares from his list of vanishing places, places you better see soon before it's too late. Let's get your ideas as well. 877-333-RICK or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm talking with uh, Jeff Greenwald, the co-founder and executive director of an outfit called ethicaltraveler.org. And uh, we've been getting email from people. Ted in Annapolis, Maryland said, bravo, we've got to urge people to wake up to the plight of coral reefs and so on. Now tell me about this, the canary in the, in the mine shaft idea about islands. So, for instance, species go extinct on islands quicker than elsewhere. Why is that? Well, because they're, they're more limited. They have uh, fewer places to migrate to or migrate from. If a creature lives on an island, it's more or less uh, stuck there in many ways. There's a wonderful organization called Seacology, uh, seacology.org, that works exclusively with islands. In fact, their, their uh, motto is saving the world one island, at a, one island at a time. And that's a great resource to go to find out more about islands. But, you know, just as islands are more at risk than mainland communities, in many ways they're also better at, at giving us a sense of how to deal with our problems. Islands are, are small communities, and they're often better at working together to do things that are obvious to save their water systems, hmm. to save their animals, to save their jungles, to save their coral reefs. You know, you, I, read, I read somewhere that three-quarters of all the extinctions recorded in history are from the island, the Hawaiian Islands. Is that correct? 
I think that that figure is correct, yeah. Now, why, why would that be? Is that just because the Hawaiian Islands are unusually developed and unusually isolated so that their uh, ecosystem would be more devastated by the changes brought well, on by... that's one reason. Yeah, I mean, the Hawaiian Island chain is one of the most remote places in, on the planet Earth. And another problem is that, of course, the islands were settled. Cattle were brought in, crops were brought in. Uh, a lot of these crops that are brought in uh, decimate islands. I mean, anyone who's hiked in, in the hills or places where there have been agriculture knows how quickly agricultural crops can take over. And, and just completely inundate an ecosystem. But does that mean in the case of Hawaii, let's say there have been like literally thousands of extinctions on the Hawaiian Islands. Okay, given that, does that mean Hawaii's got a horrible uh, environment or has it just been domesticated and changed and now they grow farm products instead of uh, wild plants? Well, I, I think that, you know, as far as Hawaii specifically, I don't know, but if you look at the big picture, I mean, they, over the last four centuries, 50% of all animals extensions have occurred on islands, okay? So I don't think it's, it's just limited to, to Hawaii. Right. 72% of the plant and animal extinctions ever recorded in the U.S. have happened in Hawaii. All right. We have Dana on the line in Mountain Vernon, Indiana. How are you doing? My only comment was more about volunteering. Uh-huh. You know, how you could volunteer while you're on vacation, volunteer as a way to explore a new corner of the world. Yeah, let's ask Jeff about that. Jeff, are there ways to get their roll up their sleeves and volunteer and help out? Absolutely. I think, well, the, the, the most obvious way to help out, of course, is to find one of these organizations and contribute to them, like org. But if you want to be a volunteer traveler, there's a lot of great resources you can go to uh, to find out about that. Global Exchange is an a- absolutely wonderful organization to look into. Uh, GreenEarthTravel.com in Maryland has resources. EcoAfrica.com has resources uh, for the traveler who'd like to volunteer. EcoTravel.com um, and uh, Planeta, Planeta.com has an ecotourism resource guide that I believe includes volunteer opportunities for travelers. Jeff, do you list all of these at your ethicaltraveler.org site? I don't think we have a list of them, but we do have links to a few of them. Okay, that would be a good thing to do. Oh, okay, great. All right, Dana, thanks for your call. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. I've been talking with Jeff Greenwald. He's written Shopping for Buddhas. He's written The Size of the World. His new book, Scratching the Surface, is a collection of his many uh, magazine articles. And Jeff is the executive director and co-founder of Ethical Traveler. To learn more about Jeff Greenwald's work on the uh, subject of ecotourism, check out his website. It's ethicaltraveler.org. Jeff, thanks so much for your insight into this more important than ever issue. Great talking to you, Rick. Happy travels. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and I want to talk about vanishing destinations. Travel writer Michael Shapiro has just done a little research in that regard, and we're going to talk about just that, places that you better see now, because a few years down the road, you won't be able to see them. Michael, thanks for joining us. Oh, sure, Rick. Thanks for having me with you. I didn't realize how many places are actually on the uh, sort of endangered lists, and there's actually a, an organization, the World Monuments Fund, that tracks this, and they keep a list right. of Right. Every couple of years, every two years, the World Monuments Fund puts out a hundred places around the world that they feel are in imminent danger of either being destroyed or being overrun. And, and sometimes it happens. Remember uh, about five years ago in Afghanistan when those giant Buddha figures were destroyed by the Taliban at Bamiyan. And, and places do vanish. It's hard to believe sometimes and it's hard to accept. But a lot of attractions around the world are either you know, threatened by climate change, they're threatened by looters, uh, they're threatened by just being loved to death by too many tourists coming and wanting to see them. And if that's not limited, over-visitation can be a threat yeah. as well. You know, I, I perused that website. It's really quite good of the 100 endangered sites. Right. The website is simply wmf.org for World Mon- Monuments Fund, wmf.org. Um, what struck you as particularly interesting, Michael, as far as uh, these endangered destinations? Well, what really struck me is how the world is constantly in flux and changing and that you never know really what could happen next. And, you know, one thing I think is especially poignant aren't just the places, but other tourist attractions, for example, the mountain gorillas in Central Africa in, you know, in the, in the region of the Congo, where there's only a few hundred of these beautiful creatures left. And 
that's really a dilemma. Do you go see them? Do you just leave them be? And in some ways, tourism can actually help threatened wildlife populations, such as the cheetahs, that if game parks are created, then, then they have more of a chance. And in some cases, there's just nothing you can do. I wrote a similar story a few years ago, also for the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, and a couple of the places on there were rivers, uh, you know, the, the China Three Gorges area and the Bio Bio River in Chile. And the Bio Bio still exists, but it's been dammed in five or seven places, and it used to be one of the world's great river rafting adventures. Yeah. And now you can still see the Bio Bio, and you can even maybe get in a boat for a couple hours here and there, but you can't do a seven-day trip on the Bio Bio anymore, at least not, not covering any distance. And, and it's sad. It's not just sad for travelers who want to see the river and enjoy it. It's sad, most of all, for the people who made their homes, the indigenous people who lived along the banks of this river and have been relocated and it's happening in China to a to a huge degree in the Three Gorges area to build this this massive dam. So it's human effects, it's also natural effects. It's well, I was perusing before we started talking and one of your readers sagely wrote in saying if you want to see snow atop Mount Kilimanjaro, don't wait too long because every year the snows of Kilimanjaro are receding. Well, so I think it's, we got you know we got Jonathan on the line right now I think from Colorado Springs. Uh, Jonathan Hi, how's yeah. it going, Rick? It's going good. Thanks for your call. Now, uh, what is what is your thoughts on this uh, vanishing places? Well, with uh, a lot of places we've traveled, uh, I keep putting it off, but uh, I think for my 30th birthday, I want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro and actually want to see it with the snow on top of it before it just becomes bare like all the Colorado mountains in the summertime. So, <laughs> so there really is an um, undeniable change in uh, sightseeing as far as glaciers go and climbing mountains and enjoying the snow-capped peaks and so on. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Um, especially in Colorado, we've had all these, uh, you know, just the local change of weather. You know, we've had drought years, and we've had a lot of snow up in the mountains this year, but it's really kind of uh, kind of hit and miss. It's kind of, you know, short-term local uh, changes in weather. I think uh, experts at Glacier National Park actually have, have figured out what year they figure the last glacier there will vanish, and they'll have to rename the park. Right. <laughs> it's kind of a kind of a sad thing. I know my friends in Switzerland lament the fact that there's no more uh, summer skiing on the glaciers as there used to be. That used to be a big deal for tourists in Switzerland. Yeah. Uh, uh, in related comments, uh, Sherry from uh, Rivers Junction, Michigan, writes and says that the the glaciers in Alaska are vanishing. Bobby in uh, Alamo, California, she said uh, she's seen uh, glaciers dramatically receding uh, in in the Alps. That's sort of a, a stark fact that there's a, a reason to get out there and see these things if you want to. What other um, climate-related uh, changes do we have? We've got, uh, Michael, there's uh, some island nations that literally are five or six feet above sea level, right? Right, and, and every year they're getting closer. And, and some when you see something like Tuvalu, the South Pacific island that's barely above sea level, sea level uh, starting to disappear, it's, it's, and the Maldives, too, near India, it's just we're in a situation where people are having to make decisions. And Tuvalu is an in- interesting case because they actually have the ability to buy real estate elsewhere, they, this is sort of a, a, a tangent, but a few years ago when all the countries of the world were designated two, two-letter internet, sir, you know, like the UK, it's .uk, and right. Tuvalu was .tv for their web domains, .tv. Well, that became very valuable because lots of people in the U.S. wanted the .tv domain, so they sold the rights to .tv for huh. $45 million dollars. Is that right? Because I've seen .tv on web addresses, and that's actually just the Tuvalu, the national uh, suffix on the Internet for Tuvalu. Well, it was, right, Rick, and then they sold the rights to it, and so I'm not sure what their new uh, web suffix is. I think it's UW. uh, Oh, okay. Underwater. (laughs) Well, it could be soon, but... um, Well, there's 11,000 people on that island, and apparently they're actually now figuring out how they can evacuate and move to islands nearby, apparently to save their culture, but go to places that won't be submerged. And what was the other island nation you mentioned, Michael? Well, I've heard that the Maldives are threatened, too, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't done much research on Mm -hmm. that, but, but, you know, several of those South Pacific uh, and coastal cities looking farther down the road... It's, you know, I think about places such as Venice that 
if you haven't seen Venice, don't wait too long, because although they're protecting it, we thought they were protecting New Orleans, too. And, yeah. you know, and that's one of my travel regrets, is I was hoping in the last couple of years to get to New Orleans, and I always thought, well, it's a busy time, I'll go next year. You know, it's just in Venice, and the city re- continues to sink, but what they do every every so often is add another layer of pavement to St. Mark's Square. And right now right. you go there, and it's cordoned off, and they're literally, uh, they take off, um, they don't add another pavement, they take off the top layer of bricks, and then they add sand below that, and then they relay the bricks, and it's about six or eight inches higher, and that'll put off the uh, the eventual su- submersion of the main square for a little while longer. Hey, Jonathan, thanks for your call. Well, thanks, Rick, and you guys have a good day. Okay, and uh, Lisa's on the line in Arkansas. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Thanks for your call. What are you thinking about in the uh, in the in the area of vanishing places? Well, first I was going to make a comment, and then I was going to ask you a question about some of the towns that you uh, would recommend. Um, my comment was on the Ozark area. Uh, in Missouri and in Arkansas, and uh, there's so many uh, things that I don't know how much longer that people will still keep up doing the, you know, things like uh, the crafts that were done a long time ago and uh, the, you know, whittling and things like that. And there's a little town called Mountain View, and it's a little treasure of a town. It's uh, it's in it's in north central Arkansas. It's about a two hour drive uh, northwest of Memphis, and there's a place there called the uh, Ozark Folk Center. You can watch people making baskets and brooms, and there's a sarga mill, and uh, you, people be whittling, and uh, like, like what uh, what Mr. Clampett used to do on the front, you know, the front of the house. Oh, right. And so that was, uh, you know, whittling uh, mm-hmm. wood. But anyway, uh, this place is wonderful, and it's in a beautiful area. So, Lisa, what Obviously, is the name of that a, town? Big part. It's what? called Mountain View. Mountain and View. And uh, there's a mountain. <laughs> uh, right. You can see this little. It's probably more like a hill, but it's. If you just can't get away from it, it's so pretty. All around you see it, and it's a big fishing area. But, and it just looks like you stepped out of a time machine. You know, went back. Okay, but let me get that clear. Let me get that clear, Lisa. Is that actually a museum or is it a town? If there's a town itself, is what I was calling it. It's being a vanishing place. It's Mountain View, Arkansas. The town itself is very charming. It looks, you know, very old looking. But the place is called the Ozark Folk Center, and it is in the little town. Of Mountain View. Okay, because that's a, a problem all over the world as the modern world rampages through. Uh, traditional uh, folk cultures are endangered, and thank goodness, uh, if they're if they're going to become uh, uh, extinct, they're going to be kept alive in these museums. Uh, that's one of my favorite uh, sightseeing attractions all over the world is the open air folk museums where they keep the traditional crafts uh, alive, and you can see those all over uh, Europe as as well as in places in our hemisphere. You know, it's kind of like the Polynesian Center in on uh, Oahu. It's just, uh, you know, it's it was a lifestyle 100 years ago, and it's kept alive right. in a museum today. Or even on Bali, where they do the traditional dances, but they do them primarily for the travelers right. who come to visit. And some people say, well, at least they kept the dances alive. But, I, you know, I think it's a different thing when you're performing for your visitors than when you're performing for your own people and yourself. Well, there's the vanishing, vanishing sites whole idea, because uh, th- it's no problem to see these traditional dances in touristic sort of parks, but to see them actually done for local people for the actual purpose that they were designed to do, that's what's rare, and when you find that as a traveler these days, you've stumbled on something quite nice. When I was in um, Papua New Guinea, I hit it for that annual festival where all the tribes people come together for their giant sort of clan gatherings, and I tell you, there's a few uh, photographers there and a few tourists, but uh, the local people far outnumbered the tourists, and it was definitely a gathering for the locals, and to, to witness something like that really really is a great experience. Yeah, it's exciting. We had a similar experience in December. We were in a little town called Todos Santos in Guatemala, and on New Year's Eve, all the horsemen from all over the region come hundreds of kilometers, and dozens of them, they go to these parties, they drink all night at 8 in the morning, they get up on their horses, and they have a track right down the center of town, and they start racing down the track, and some of them are so drunk they cannot physically stay on their horses. We saw a couple guys topple off. Luckily, they were okay, but, but, you know, my couple of friends and I were among the only travelers there. It was hundreds and hundreds of local people, you know, on the rooftops and watching this whole spectacle, and it was, it was really exciting. Wow. Hey, Lisa in Arkansas, thanks for your call. Thank you. Have yeah. a good day. It's amazing the, um, the breadth of places that are vanishing. Down in Antarctica, uh, you know, Sir Ernst um, 
Ernest Shackleton's, Shackleton's hut. I saw uh, that, yeah. And uh, to think that that was there uh, 100 years ago, and it's in, in uh, literally risk of blowing down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Mexico City has this historic center, which is apparently one of the, the greatest centers for colonial architecture, and it's sitting on shifting land, and there's lots of pollution, and it's just getting squeezed by 24 million people in Mexico City who are sucking up that aquifer, and uh, things are settling, and, and that's in danger. Even in Britain, we've got a, a case where a lot of charming little village churches, uh, the population in these towns is going down, and, mm-hmm. and uh, there's uh, less people worshiping in the churches, and they're just being shuttered up, and, and that's a great loss. And what, just what on a thoughts? similar topic to something you mentioned a moment ago uh, about irrigation and, and how draining an aquifer, an aquifer can change uh, what's on top of it, the World Monuments Fund also had a selection for the West Bank of Luxor, all these tombs and shrines, these ancient Egyptian treasures, which are not just threatened by over-tourism, but they're threatened by agriculture and water use. And, and when the Aswan Dam was built, it changed the whole relationship to water and land in that region. And because they're draining this aquifer and they're spreading agriculture close to these places, there's salt saltwater encroachment, and it seems like they're having all sorts of problems that you know, these places survive for thousands of years, mm. and then the human impact is what's ultimately taking the most severe toll. Yeah, it is fun when you read this list to find out all the different things that take a toll on these uh, precious parts of our heritage. Segovia has this incredible Roman aqueduct, and it's 2,000 years old, and it was actually bringing water into the city until uh, modern times. Mm. And uh, it's been uh, deteriorating uh, because uh, there's actually plants growing in it and, and birds nesting in it, and masonry is starting, starting to deteriorate, and there's a lot of pollution there. Um, Aphrodisias, one of my favorite sites in Turkey, is on the list, and uh, it's been recently excavated, and they uncovered it, which is great. And then they ran out of money, so they can't do anything with it, and now it's being uh, vandalized and uh, exposed to the uh, uh, elements. And, and this is a problem for some of these 2,000-year-old uh, bits of, of European heritage. So mm-hmm. all over the place. You know, uh, a fascinating other member of the list is the entire country of Iraq. Right. What do they say? There's 10,000 sites uh, there all over the country that go back to, you know, the, the days of Babylon and Assyria and Sumeria and so on. The very yeah. first writing was done there, and uh, King Hammurabi with his uh, first law code and, and the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. Uh, we've probably read about the ziggurat, that crude sort of early uh, kind of Mesopotamian version of a pyramid at Ur. All of these things are subject to looters, to uh, vandalism, and, of course, shelling during all the uh, conflict there. And we saw it with that beautiful mosque, you know, with the gold domes that was destroyed. And uh, that's not something that you can replace so quickly. No. Well, Michael Shapiro, this has been fascinating to talk to you. And I I would like to remind our listeners that if they want to learn more about this, to check out the World Monuments Fund. And they've got a website. It's wmf.org. Michael, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sure. Thanks for having me on, Rick. Okay. Bye now. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in the series, including archived audio and podcast extras. You'll also find a link to post your thoughts for other listeners. It's all on the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.